1999, screenwriter Alan Bell and director Sam Mendes released their classic film, American Beauty. The film's posters invited audiences to look closer at the lives of the suburban, upper-middle-class characters, and they would find that they were not what they seemed on the outside. Behind the two-car garages and white picket fences, there were secrets, double lives, and ultimately, murder. It's a tale that's been told time and time again. And in 1984, our region was gripped by a story that seemed to contain all of those elements. On July 5th of that year, the body of Hannah Buxbaum was found at the side of Highway 402. She had been shot three times by a hitman hired by her husband, nursing homeowner Helmuth Buxbaum. The Buxbaums were well known in the London area as a wealthy, hardworking, and religious family. But there was another side to Helmuth, a side that involved drugs, prostitutes, and eventually the hiring of men to kill his wife. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, part one of a two-part series on the murder of Hannah Buxbaum and the investigation that led to her husband's arrest. This episode is hosted by Haley Chang. It's, it's a big deal in London, okay, where you know these people um, or you've bumped into them somewhere along the line. Like uh, He really was a huge fish in a very small pond here. That's Brendan Evans. He was the assistant crown attorney during the Bucksbaum trial. And he was right. It was a big deal in London. But the story also went beyond our borders. In 2014, an Australian filmmaker featured the story on a TV docuseries. And even though it happened so long ago, it was and continues to be a major story. It's not every day that a man worth $20 million, a pillar in the church community, father to six children, and a perceived devoted husband shows a side of himself that shocks an entire province. But there were two sides to Helmut Buxbaum, a real-life Jekyll and Hyde. Buxbaum was a very wealthy nursing home owner and operator. He emigrated from Europe when he was 15 or 16 or so and uh, landed in Kitchener, ultimately got involved in the nursing home business. That was back in the late 70s, early 80s, where the government of the day was trying to shift long-term care patients out of hospitals into nursing homes. And there weren't many nursing homes. Buxman was a pretty astute businessman, and um, the government was willing to pay, at that time, pretty big dollars in order to have some place for the senior citizens to go as opposed to the hospital. So overall, he had, uh, over the years, developed somewhere between eight and ten nursing homes. He was a keen businessman that was quick to pick up on a market inefficiency. Clearly, it paid off. But he didn't do it all alone. His wife, Hannah, was his business partner at the time and played a major role in keeping things running. Mel Getty was the lead investigator for the OPP during the case. They lived in the village of Kamoka, which is sort of west of London. And uh, they, had a, they had five natural children and one adopted child. And they, they ran a very successful uh, several nursing homes. And they attended the West Park Baptist Church uh, in London. And he was a, a large donator of money to the church for camps and projects. And he had a, an image of being a devoted family man, um, wealthy, 
helping other people that needed help. Publicly, he had the image that people dreamed of. Money, family, the admiration of everyone around him. But privately, he couldn't have been any more different. As the trial progressed, uh, and the police had, as I said, numerous tips in, lots of witnesses came forward uh, to testify, uh, but also prior to that to give information to the police, which shifted the focus entirely. Um, And it really was almost like a a tale of of two people. Uh, On the one hand, uh, this upstanding uh, citizen, millionaire, everything going for him, versus the other side of him that um, became more prominent uh, in, I guess, late 83 into 84. I should mention that um, during the trial, it turned out that we found out, or just before then, that Helmuth had had a stroke um, back in 82 or 83. And I've forgotten all the details, but the gist was that's why he became this Jekyll and Hyde personality. And it turned out from the police investigation that he had this personality long before the stroke. But the stroke just eliminated any kind of discretion that he would have, okay? And it just became more blatant, but still doing the same thing, only at an accelerated rate. And just no discretion whatsoever. Money buys everything. And uh, he proved that to be true for a long period of time. He uh, got into, uh, for any number of reasons, which were fully canvassed at trial, he got into uh, London's underbelly at that point in time, you know, using uh, the services of various prostitutes. Uh, he joined a, uh, an escort club, heavy, heavy drug use, um, particularly cocaine, which was the drug of choice of most of the people that he was associating with in various bars, hotels, and things like that. And it steadily progressed in a downward spiral is the only way to describe it. But while it might seem like it all began in the 80s, it was well before then that Buxbaum began his double life. We learned that as far back as 1965, he had extramarital affairs um, frequently. As uh, the marriage progressed and as everything progressed, they became more frequent. The late 60s, early 70s, he was um, having affairs with, I would classify as young businesswomen, uh, professionals, single. And he would often uh, take them down south to different uh, resorts uh, for a week, over to Europe for a week. He paid everything. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the purpose was obviously for, for sex and, and company. Mm-hmm. Can't give you the time frame when it started to change it went from young professional women to the hookers the strippers uh known uh, uh entertainers um he got doing that and he got into um the drug scene in london back in the 60s cocaine was sort of a social drug he was into that and he would buy it from um dealers and bars in London, and then share it with whoever was in the group. 
his sexual desires went from one-on-one to the group to uh, observing lesbian acts and uh, shooting up. Uh, he was doing the by needle injection mm-hmm. and uh, his partners would uh, inject them. And during that time, his, his story was to, the, to these women that his wife was very cold. She, uh, she only wanted sex to conceive children and he wanted more out of life. He did say to several that he, uh, he was divorced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ran across the, some documentation on an escort service where he applied and paid a membership fee where he marked it as uh, uh, divorce separated as opposed to married, which is probably not uncommon if, if you're going to do that. And he did that while maintaining his public life as being a devoted father, a loving husband, a strong member of the community. As discreet as Helmet was, or thought he was, his second life didn't stay hidden for long. Hannah eventually found out, learning where the thousands of dollars that were disappearing from their bank accounts were going. But in a decision that would ultimately lead to her demise, she chose to stick with him and try to help. She was starting to put some restrictions on him. He didn't like that. Uh, I go back to money can buy anything. So she was trying to uh, save her business. Uh, She was a part owner in the nursing home business. Uh, She wanted him uh, out of the uh, milieu that he had uh, frequented. Uh, They were a very prominent force in the Baptist community here in London. All right. West Park Baptist Church uh, in particular. And so he was he had one public persona, but then his private life. And the, they were irreconcilable. As Hannah continued to press him, you know, to change his ways, um, and he got more deeply immersed in the drug subculture, where he was very popular, you can imagine. Everybody was ripping him off. They'd sell him drugs, keep half for themselves. Of course, he's the one that's paying for all of it. And then it progressed to uh, him saying to a number of his associates, that he wanted Hannah out of the way, right? Because she was making it difficult for him. And at one point with one of the uh, witnesses, he described her as being a pain in his ass. Um, And he wanted rid of it. And therefore, rid of her. So uh, in drunken, drug-induced conversations uh, with numerous people, he tried to arrange for her her murder. There was two or three different plans that they came up with. One was to kidnap her and have her killed. Of course, he's dealing with a fellow by the name of Robert Barrett, um, who was the mastermind, small m mastermind of this whole caper. The transition from barroom drunken banter to an actual plan happened quickly. However, plans are only as good as the people making them. And pretty quickly, their plans started to fall apart. Ultimately, Barrett uh, arranges for what was described as the first hit. And that occurred uh, shortly after, I think it was two or three days after the family got back from their European vacation, two weeks in Europe. And Hannah and Helmuth were on their way to Toronto to pick up uh, their nephew, 
Roy, who was 14 years old at the time, arrangements were made um, for uh, Buxbaum uh, and a fellow by the name of Pat Allen with Barrett, and they arranged uh, for a hit on the side of Highway uh, 402 going from Kamoka to Toronto to pick up a nephew. And they had scouted out a location on the eastbound lanes of 402, probably three or four kilometers away from County Road 14, which is a cutoff for Kamoka off Highway 402. There was a, um, a deep ditch on the side of the road with a culvert and a metal grate over this culvert. And the plan was that Alan and others would be at the side of the road. They had rented a car uh, because these guys didn't have cars. They had rented a car. And the plan was to be on the side of the road at 8 o'clock in the morning of July the 5th. And um, the gunman was already, you know, to, uh, to shoot her right there. The plan was to pull her out of the car, shoot her, dump her down the culvert, and everybody goes home and continues to party. Well, as it turned out, uh, uh, Helmuth was late in arriving at the location. The uh, shooter and Alan were, were there already. The shooter, Poche, is already in the bushes waiting for this to happen. And it was for a hit at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. Boxbaum was late. Okay, for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And Buxbaum finally pulls up behind the rented car. Hannah's in the front passenger seat. One of the would-be assassins tells uh, Helmuth that there's something wrong with the fan belt or something. Helmuth says, well, I don't know much about you know, cars, but I'll go and take a look and see if I can help you. The idea being that he would then get out of the car and is still in the car and it could go down. As it happened, there was a routine mail delivery uh, system between Strathroy OPP and the regional office in London. And there was a uh, particular police officer who, on a daily basis, would come into London, drop off mail, pick up mail, bring it back to Strathroy along the 402. And as their uh, helmet is still at the uh, rental car with Pat Allen, Poche, the shooter, is in the bushes. They see the cruiser coming down the 402. The cruiser is being driven by an officer by the name of uh, Bill Medlin. He pulls off to the side of the road to see if he can help. Not a good sign, you know, for the would-be assassins. Hill gets out of the car, Officer Milton. He gets out of the, the car, asks if everything is all right. They assure him that it's all good. You know, we're fine. Hill then leaves. He's satisfied that he can't be of any assistance. He leaves the scene. Foxbaum's urging them to, to get it done. And Pat Allen says, no, the officer's there. He's seen us. Okay, this is not going to happen. 
So Helmuth is not pleased by this. That's just who we were dealing with here, unorganized, inexperienced killers. Undeterred by the first failure, they continued on. The one that always stuck with me on this case was that he orchestrated um, driving Hannah to a place where she was going to be killed, not once, but twice on the same day. That shows not only callousness, but determination. Helmuth continues on to Toronto, uh, sopping along the way to visit family in Kitchener area, gets to the airport, ultimately picks up Roy uh, Buxbaum, the 14-year-old, and then makes a number of phone calls or receives phone calls from Robert Barrett, who's the one who's setting all of this up. And uh, after a series of calls, it's arranged that uh, it would happen on the way home, you know, from Pearson Airport back to Kamoka. Alan, at this point in time, is skittish. He doesn't want anything to do with this because he said, you know, the police there, that was a close call. Uh, this is not a good plan. So Barrett arranges for Alan to hand over um, a gun to another fellow by the name of Poche, but uh, also a fellow by the name of Terry Arms. And in effect, they're going to take over the contract. You know, Buxbaum picks up Roy. They're on their way back. It's around um, 7 o'clock in the evening of the 5th of July. And Buxbaum is advised uh, that the hit would take place on the westbound lanes of 402, close to the Kamoka cutoff, uh, County Road 14, which is now Glendon Drive. Right. Buxbaum uh, takes over driving after they uh, get a bite to eat at a McDonald's or something in Milton. Uh, Hannah had been driving. He takes over the car and uh, is driving along uh, looking for, you know, the rented vehicle, the Blue Nova. Not to be seen. So he gets to the uh, cutoff. And uh, as he's making the turn up the ramp, you know, the Kamoka cutoff, he sees a car, he claimed, the exit, the CNR um, bridge, just down the road, past the uh, Kamoka Road cutoff, like towards Strathroy, missed by an exit. They, um, the Keystone cops here had pulled up to the wrong exit, all right, and they're sitting in the bushes waiting. And uh, Buxbaum's exit, uh, which he took, is about a kilometer back or half a kilometer. So Buxbaum takes the ramp, sees this car, tells Hannah that it looks very much like their neighbor's car. So he's going to go down and see if they can help. He then pulls a U-turn at the top of the ramp, goes back down the entrance ramp to the 402, and pulls in behind this blue Nova. Almost immediately, remember Roy's in the back seat. Almost immediately, two people are in the Nova. One gets out, uh, opens up the back door, back 
uh, driver's door where Roy is, tells him as he flashes a uh, small revolver in his face, keep your head down. All right. Pushes him down into the wheel well of the uh, uh, or the back seat area of the car. And then goes around to the driver or passenger side where Hannah's sitting, grabs her by the hair after he opens the door, pulls her over a guardrail. Okay. And in, while that's going on, she's struggling, pleading for her life, saying, please don't hurt me. I have five kids at home and similar comments. Uh, there's a bit of a struggle to get her over the guardrail. Meanwhile, Helmuth is outside his vehicle on the driver's side, looking over the top of the car so he can see into the ditch in the guardrail. Hannah's on the other side. Shortly after, the gunman gets her over the guardrail, okay, and he's holding her uh, at this point by the neck. He has this 32 caliber revolver, which he had gotten from Allen against her temple, the left temple. And uh, Han is still pleading, you know, with him. And then says to Helmuth, at this point, we surmised, she's clued in that he's involved in this. The car that they pulled up behind is the same car or looks very similar to the one from the morning. So she's figured it out at that point. And says to Helmuth, please, honey, not like this. Not like this. Uh, the next thing that happens of significance is there are three shots fired. Uh, one into Hannah's left temple, which ultimately lodges in her brain and rattles around the skull for a bit, uh, causing a lot of damage. A second shot grazes her upper arm. I forgot which one, but. There's a flesh wound there. And the third shot goes astray. Um, the Hannah, uh, you know, falls on the other side of the guardrail, bleeding profusely. The shooter and his accomplice race back to their car, pausing long enough to take Hannah's purse from the car because the door's open. So they grab the purse on the way by. Helmuth is still looking over the, the roof of his car uh, on the driver's side. He makes no effort to help her at all or to do anything other than watch. The shooter and his accomplice jump in the rented car and take off westbound um, towards Strathroy in the 402. Helmuth then is being observed, as it turns out, by any number of people who are traveling westbound on the 402, um, they see this car there and a man standing. Um, he goes around the car, his car, peers over the guardrail, sees Hannah um, bleeding on the other side, and she's not moving, obviously. And then he goes back to his car about the same time a, that a passerby driving a truck driver stops to help. Doesn't know what's going on, but he's seen this man outside the, the vehicle on the side of the road underneath this overpass, CNR uh, overpass. So he stops, gets the, the story from 
Helmuth that a um, couple of bad guys robbed him and shot his wife. The uh, truck driver, I'm sorry, his name escapes me, but tells Helmuth that um, he's got a, the truck driver has a CB or something. This is back in 1984, don't forget, right? And uh, he's called for assistance, 911 basically, then tells Helmuth to jump in the car and go get help. Helmuth does, and as he gets back in his car, he tells Roy, quick, look up so you can get a look at this car and maybe get the license plate number. As it's speeding away westbound um, on the 402. Helmuth starts heading towards Strathroy, and he sees a OPP cruiser in the medium, a couple of kilometers away. So he pulls in there and talks to the officer who's in the median, in a cruiser, and uh, says that uh, his wife has been shot and robbed. It starts to unfold from there. Emergency personnel all over the place now. Hannah's brought to a hospital in uh, London and ultimately succumbs to her injuries about an hour later. You know, there was so much damage done. There's a lot to unpack here about what transpired. There were lots of curious aspects to the hit. Loose ends that any organized criminal would never leave lying around, only to be found through a thorough investigation. It all stems from the company Helmet kept and the criminal masterminds, lowercase m, he employed. Put simply, these were not people you hire if you want to get away with murder. He could have driven Hannah over to Detroit, had her bumped off in downtown Detroit. It wouldn't even make the news down there. You know, a shopping trip, you know, and uh, gone bad or a carjacking, which was not uncommon uh, down there at the time. Um, but instead, he gets these drug-addled um, individuals who thought it was a good idea to get some easy money. To get a sense of why everything fell apart, let's take a closer look at Helmut's A-team and all the mistakes they made along the way. Buck's mom had fronted Barrett considerable amounts of money to set this up and have it done. Barrett didn't take him seriously, spent it all on drugs, women, and uh, alcohol and was having the time of his life. He sent Rob Barrett to Florida, and it was it accumulated to about almost four weeks. Rob went down with the idea. He was, he was arranging a hitman. That was the purpose of going to Florida. That's what he sold Helmet. So yeah. Helmet said, okay, I'll send you down. You, you get it. Paid the shot for everything. Their, their resort, everything. Gave him wads of cash. And Barrett would go in and the next week say, hey, you know, it's almost done, but I, I, I need to stay down here a little bit longer and I need some more money. So anyways, it went on for three weeks. Yeah. And then Helmut says, you know, he, he, this is the last, get it done. They, he was a sucker. He had, he had a, he had a mark on his face. Uh, like he was the mark, like anybody. Anybody could get anything from him. Even before the crime happened, it was clear everything was going to fall apart. Helmet was naive to think it would go otherwise, and he was naive to think he wasn't part of the problem. Helmet, just like the others, did a terrible job at covering his tracks. The next day, 
he's getting phone calls and he's running around London selling gold bars to various uh, dealers to collect more money because <laughs> when they got, when the uh, Foshane and uh, Arms got to Toronto with their uh, ladies for the day, all the money that Barrett had, he spent on drugs. Oh. So they're ready to throw him out of a 10 story window of the hotel. And so he got on the phone and he got more money. And so Helmet was said he'd get more money. He went around London all day and we, we tracked his, his route and where he went and how much he sold and how much he got and how much he collected from the money machine and all that. So Barrett had to come back to London that night, the night after the murder to get the money to pay the guys that were going to throw him out the window. Mm -hmm. So he and Janet Hicks go to the airport, a flight to uh, come home and uh, come to London. They missed the first flight. They book a flight and they miss it. So they get to uh, the airport and they just missed a flight. And Barrett's just crazy. He has to get to London. Yeah. And he's talking about chartering an aircraft, renting a helicopter, and uh, the airline staff got him calmed down enough to say, well, there's another flight to London in 40 minutes. You can wait and take that. So he agreed to do that. They got the tickets for that flight. And he phoned down to uh, London, Karen Hicks, and told her that uh, they missed their flight. Page Helmet, call Helmet at the airport mm -hmm. and tell him that we're coming on the next one. We're going to land at 8.40 in the evening. Helmet gets the message. So he's sitting in the uh, lobby of the London airport. Yeah. It was a much smaller lobby back then. And uh, one of the people that attend the same church as Helmet, a friend, uh, a doctor, a transplant doctor in London, he gets yeah. off an airplane, he comes through, and he sees how much sleeping at the airport. <laughs> and he knows his wife was murdered the night before. Yeah. And he says, Helmet, like, what are you doing here? You okay? Like, well, very sorry about Hannah, but like, what, what are you here for? <laughs> he says, I'm, I'm waiting for my nephew to fly in. He says, well, can, can, can we take you somewhere and have someone pick him up? No, 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 that's fine. I'll wait for him here. No. Okay. And then he leaves. So with all the all the fuss that Barrett made at the airport, the airlines notified the RCMP at the airport, who then contacted back in the day they had an RCMP consul at London Airport. Yeah. And um, was told, just observe these two passengers that get off the plane. Yeah. Follow them. See where they go. See who they meet. Don't don't talk to them. Don't stop them. Yeah. So they, they do that. Well, on that flight down, they're the only two people on the plane. Oh. <laughs> so they get off. The Mountie sees them. Sees what happens. This and that. They meet box bomb. Barrett goes out to the car, to helmet station wagon, the brown station wagon that uh, he was driving the night, yeah. the day of the murder. He collected, I think Barrett went back to Toronto with about 18 grand that night. Yeah. Um, thereabouts. And then after he gave him the money, he went, helmet left. 
Well, they're waiting for the airport. So Barrett causes drug connection in London and has drugs delivered to the airport. And the Mountie follows them up to the car. No, they go into the men's washroom. Oh. The drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the Mountie went in and walked right out again. Uh, made like he used to wash him and then walked out and then observed. Mm-hmm. And then 10 minutes later, Barrett, the drug dealer, came up. So he uh, reported back to the RCMP. Uh, when they boarded the same flight, the same crew, it was just a turnaround crew for uh, uh, the airlines. Yeah. We were the only two on the airplane flying back. Yeah. And and the uh, the, the stewardess, her name was Rebecca, but um, she saw them uh, doing cocaine. Yeah. <sighs> Lines of cocaine uh, sitting, in, sitting at the seat. Oh, my goodness. So she reported that to the captain. The captain notified the RCMP in Toronto that they had passengers doing cocaine. Well, they were busted in Toronto. Not doing drugs on a public flight would be a prerequisite to keeping a low profile for a hitman's payment. Eventually, the mistakes they made caught up with them. And Helmut Buxbaum, Rob Barrett, Terry Arms, Gary Fauché, and Pat Allen were all arrested. It was a comedy of errors with a poorly conceived plan executed by terrible criminals, and in the end, an innocent woman, a mother of six, a devoted Christian, philanthropist, and businesswoman lost her life. To be honest with you, I have 35 years policing. Yeah, it, it stands out. I mean, I've had a lot of homicides and death investigations. That's all I did for 12 years. Yeah, this is, I mean, this was, at the time, this was the, the top three homicides in Canada. Every story has two sides to it. And for this one in particular, that couldn't be more true. In part two of Murder for Hire, The Killing of Hannah Buxbaum, we take a look at the trial, Hannah's legacy, and how the case impacted the lives of everyone involved, including the Buxbaum family, Mel Getty, and Brendan Evans. This episode of the 519 Podcast was produced by Haley Chang, Craig Needles, and Patrick Magermans. Remember, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.